0: correspondents in world capitals and in the fighting zones in the Western Pacific are ready to give you the latest news direct by shortwave radio. And now for news of our own West Coast, we take you to Los Angeles and the report of Byron Palmer. Anti-aircraft guns went into action against unidentified aircraft in the Los Angeles area shortly after 3 a.m. Pacific wartime this morning. The anti-aircraft guns began barking during a blackout ordered by the 4th Interceptor Command at 2.25 a.m. The unidentified object, which some sources thought might be a blimp, moved slowly down the Pacific coast from Santa Monica and disappeared south of Long Beach. Army officials declined to comment on the possibility that the object might have been a blimp. However, it required nearly 30 minutes to travel some 25 miles, far slower than an airplane. Watchers on the rooftop of the Columbia Broadcasting Building in the heart of Hollywood could plainly see the flashes of guns and searchlights sweeping the skies in a wide arc along the coastal area. Concussion of the shells could be felt in downtown Los Angeles, 15 miles away. U.S. Army planes quickly took to the dark skies, but whether they contacted the object has not been announced. Army officials say they will not comment until they receive a full report of the action. Although some watchers say they saw airplanes in the air, semi-official sources say they probably were the U.S. Army's pursuit. Several observers say they saw one or more planes spotlighted by 20 or 30 searchlights. The object moved southward, presumably over Huntington Park at the western edge of Los Angeles, and on southward to about Long Beach on the coast. By 3.30 a.m., observers said the object appeared to be over the south of Long Beach. Searchlights closely followed the object down the coast and kept it centered in their glare. Shells frequently could be seen bursting near the object, but none appeared to hit it. The shooting stopped about 3.30 a.m. The shooting brought warfare to the front door of this city of a million and a quarter population for the first time since December 7th. Already, it was alert to the presence off the Southern California coast of a Japanese submarine which had pumped 25 shells into an oil field north of Santa Barbara Monday evening. Because of the presence of the submarine, a three-hour alert was ordered at dusk last night, and civilian authorities stood at their posts while the Army and Navy continued their search for the submersible. The evening alert ended at 10.23 p.m., but another was sounded at 2.22 a.m., and the blackout followed within three minutes. It covered Los Angeles County from Santa Monica to Pomona. At 2.27, all Southern California radio stations were ordered off the air, except those in San Diego. Approximately 20 minutes after the firing died down, the ship returned and headed westward from Long Beach toward Santa Monica. The guns went into action again, hurling round after round of shells at the object. The second barrage appeared to be closer to downtown Los Angeles since watchers could hear the concussion of the guns more clearly and the flash of bursting shells was brighter. Then the ship disappeared for the second time over the ocean. We return you now to CBS in New York.
1: Welcome. Here you will hear stories of the unknown. Tales of the twisted and terrible. Have been silenced. The strange and the transcendent riddles, secrets. As your guides, we will take you on an expedition where the curtain between worlds is torn. This is the farthest reaches. Dude, that guy sounded like he was in a spaceship. I mean, that's just how they all sound <laughs> back just in there. The the Good lord. Uh, yeah. The army and what, or army and or navy wouldn't give a report unless they receive the report. Is what they basically said. It's like we're not going to comment on that unless we get a report of exactly what happened. Aren't nope. they? Aren't they supposed to be the ones that give us the reports of exactly what happened? And I'm. Let me just say this uh, broadcast. I seem like was a pretty good report of exactly what happened. Yeah. Or what was believed to be what was happening. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But, it was uh,
2: goddamn weather balloon like always. <laughs>
1: It's very spooky, just like Orson Welles and his little radio broadcast, oh, what, it. a year earlier or so?
2: Uh,
1: I'm not actually
2: sure what year they happened.
1: I don't mind. know, sometime before. But hey, anyway, this is the Farthest Reaches, everybody. How you doing out there? My name is Matthew Plunkett, and at no extra cost, I have Joshua Burton with me. Hi. You seem very enthusiastic. I'm trying to look up this. Retake that now. The- And with me, at no extra cost, is Joshua Burton. You were wrong by, like,
2: a few years. It was 1938.
1: Oh, my God, a few years. Sorry. You said, like, a year earlier. That's exactly what I said. Don't just sit there and crack me all
2: the time. This is not what this podcast is about. trying to 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 be accurate for the listeners.
1: Okay, okay. I'll give you that. Also, yes, I'm Josh. Hi, hello. I appreciate your hard work. Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, the Battle of Los Angeles. The Great Air Raid. Of Los Angeles. This is a topic that I did not know too much of. I just figured it was almost like every other UFO case where someone says they see something in the sky that is like extraterrestrial origin. And some people follow with that and some people don't. And of course, I feel like there's uh a military or kind of government cover up in a lot of these. Or oh, what yeah. seems to be a cover up.
2: Yeah, this has been one of those cases that like I remember watching a documentary on when I was younger and it just I don't know why, but it's always stuck with me and captivated me and just it's so weird, especially when you put into perspective how many shots were fired. Yeah. You know, and the people actually did lose their lives during this time. But, I mean, it was also, you know, coming off a couple months after uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor. So, you know, tensions were high. Very in the, high. In the United States, especially on the coasts. But, yeah, I mean, it's just been one of those cases that it's always just been kind of at the forefront of my mind. And I was excited when I brought it up and you were like, yeah, sure, let's do it.
1: Yeah, I didn't think too much of it. Like I said, I kind of just saw the picture. saw people like, yeah, they shot at a mysterious aircraft, yada, yada, yada. Um and I think I did a little more research into it when the movie Battle Los Angeles was coming out. Obviously, when I did my research and then uh, actually watched Battle Los Angeles, the movie was really nothing like it at all. No, it's at just... At all. That movie, I'm sorry, but it sucked. It was not that great of a movie. Aaron Eckhart. E- Eckhart? Eckhart, E-C-K-A-G-A-R-T? Yeah. Oh, hey. Eckhart.
2: I kind of forgot. I had Michelle Rodriguez and uh, Michael Pena. And oh, a- hell yeah.
1: Anyway, so yeah, we're not going to do a review on Battle Los Angeles. That's for that at Sector Scott, okay? Uh, we're is, not talking about the movie. <laughs> Wait, this is a whole different kind of podcast. This is talking about the actual incident in 1942, the Battle of Los Angeles. So before we get into the, the nitty gritty here, social media like always, we got tfrpod official on twitter we got the farthest reaches on facebook and there's a facebook group and instagram all by the same name the farthest reaches podcast at gmail.com if you want to talk to us much more directly again you guys want to send us anything that's um, you know kind of spooky odd paranormal news please do we can always talk about it in our show if it seems you know, relevant or just there's enough credibility behind it it's a good story uh, we would love to share it. Uh, if you have any personal accounts, feel free to email us as well. Or if you want to uh, message us on like Facebook or Instagram, you can do the same. Um, just give us you know the information you would like us to speak on and, and what to not. Uh, yeah, if you would like to review us, since reviews are probably the best way for our podcast to grow, um, primarily Apple Podcasts, but yep. anywhere you can leave a review, please do. We Tell don't your care. friends. Yeah, we don't care if it's good. We don't care if it's bad. Tell your friends, family, strangers. Whatever you grab
2: somebody's phone on the bus at a bus stop, where the fuck ever and uh just have them follow the podcast so we pop up on them. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that. please do that. I'm sure they would they would uh they would like that a lot. And we're on TikTok. I have kind of
1: not used it in a while. Oh wow, but... look at that. Oh yeah, I can't, I think it's uh about time we actually get into this topic for our dear listeners. I'm sure they're waiting. So the Battle of Los Angeles, also known as the Great Air Raid of Los Angeles, and also, I'm not going to get very far into this, but the guy in that radio broadcast said Los Angeles or Anglies. Hey, people pronounce things differently. Let, well, leave them alone. Yeah, duh, they do. But I wasn't expecting that. So the Battle of Los Angeles happened during a time where paranoia was sweeping across the United States. Tensions were high amongst American citizens and a fearful reality was starting to set in. And that reality was World War II. In order to understand the who, what, when, where, and why about the Battle of L.A., we must first turn to the events that led up to this unforgettable day. With Japan being in the middle of huge industrial and economical growth, they were on the hunt for resources, and it took the European colonial powers to make that example, for Japan was trying to become the industrial competitor uh, towards the United States and to lead the practice of political influence. The U.S. took some measures to constrain Japan's growth, like an embargo on oil, and once Japan's economy was on the brink of collapse, two and only two options were clear. Given to the United States and their negotiations, which turned demands, or war. On December sixth, 1941, military codebreakers intercepted messages from Japanese envoys detailing that an attack on the United States was imminent and that somewhere along the Pacific is where this attack will take place. And I actually saw a headline of, I believe, the L.A. Times uh, newspaper that on, like, November 30th or so, it said, um, like, Japan attack imminent or Japan attack next weekend or something like that. Yeah, I
2: mean, like, the codebreakers had pretty much broken up the code and like that's when they got the word there was an actual like i, th- I think it was, yeah it was in honolulu yeah bike messenger yep where they sent the bike messenger out and like he was literally on his way to distribute the message that said you know the attack was in intimate that or er, in- in- intimate yeah intimate <laughs> they're coming to forticate with <laughs> us but yeah you, you know it said like once they got it it was just like you know an attack is coming and The poor bike messenger had to take cover because Pearl Harbor happened
1: as he was trying to deliver the message. Yep. So as these war warnings were being dispatched to all Pacific area commands, a lonely bike messenger was immediately sent to deliver this warning to Honolulu's naval base. However, while pedaling as fast as he could and observing the faces of the island's residents as their day-to-day routines took place, you know, church, long walks... Children playing in the parks. Oh, yeah.
2: It was, uh, like, I think, I, like, an ideal day in Hawaii. Like, it yeah. was a beautiful day out.
1: Yeah. I think it was actually a Sunday, hence the church. Yep. Churches. The sound of approaching aircrafts, falling bombs, and streaking bullets would drown out the sounds of once peaceful living. The Japanese Imperial Navy had launched a surprise attack, an attack on Pearl Harbor. December 7th, 1941, would become known as the day that will live in infamy. The attack would last a little over an hour. Afterwards, base personnel began to assess the damage. And during the cleanup, the bike messenger finally arrived with the urgent message. Now, I do know that the bike messenger did not know what the details were in the message. Because I'm sure if he did and then the attack happened, he... I mean, he probably still delivered it because it is his job. But, I don't know, part of me almost thinks, you know, what's the point? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Pearl Harbor, I mean, you had...
2: 2,335 killed, I think, was the total of that day.
1: Um, Yeah, I'm just aware of over 2,000 lives were lost.
2: And I do know a majority of them was when the Arizona exploded, which killed 1,177.
1: Yeah, yeah, four battleships were sunk out of the (laughs) seven or eight that were there. It was was states, too. It was like USS Arizona, Nevada, Montana. West Virginia. All
2: those. But, I mean, one of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize is Oh, well, they might realize that the Arizona, like, they have a memorial, like, above, like, the wreckage of the Arizona, because it's still there. Oh, like, yeah. But a lot of people don't realize is that since they, so many of the sailors were trapped and sailors and Marines, there's still 900, I think, bodies.
1: Unclaimed or unaccounted in, for? Like,
2: in the Arizona, just because they couldn't figure out a way to get it respectfully to, like, re- like to retrieve the bodies. So they gotcha. pretty much put them, like, as buried at sea. Uh, a watery grave, and I think it's like there's like three or four that are still, um, in the uh, USS uh, Utah as
1: well. I think the, the Nevada was another one that was about to sink, but the captain was able to steer it aground, so yeah. so it wouldn't block the canal in case anyone needed to escape. Because once the Arizona or further blocked the canal, because yeah. once the Arizona sank, it just or well, yeah, sank, it just blocked the canal, yep. and they couldn't get out. Uh, And 169 planes were also destroyed in the attack of Pearl Pearl Harbor. So the next day, December 8th, President Franklin D. Roosevelt delivered one of the most famous speeches in history. And we will play that for you now.
3: Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy.
1: Ooh, he said it, he said it, he said it.
3: The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with its government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu.
1: Sounds like COVID's going on. You hear these people coughing?
3: As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense. (coughs) Fit in. But always, Will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us? No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. I believe that I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger with confidence in our armed forces with the unbounding determination of our people we will gain the inevitable triumph so help us god that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. FDR. FDR D R I don't Deep know Chanting.
2: what I don't know what it is, but like that like the like sound of applause that like you hear when you hear like listen to old timey like radios. Yeah. I don't know why, but it just it hits you so much harder.
1: Gets you pumped? Yeah. Makes you feel like you were there? It does. Yeah. I don't know why. I I have to say I don't feel like I get that feeling, but I don't know why. Like I just always liked it. I just like the sound of old timey. I mean the broadcast in the beginning oh, yeah. and now this. Um, yeah. Can, can there be a cough counter in this episode? Can oh. someone tell me how fucking coughs people were, were doing in that, that speech? You think it's when they break up their speech like that, I'm sure there's multiple reasons why, but good Lord, I'm almost convinced now that part of the reason why you break up your speech and leave gaps is for other people to just fucking cough because they don't want to <laughs> cough while you talk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then less and an hour later, Congress granted the President's request for a declaration of war against Japan. Enlistment numbers grew drastically as people from all walks of life wanted to defend their country. December 18, 1941, a Japanese submarine attacked the SS Samoa. The crippled ship changed course and headed for shore to avoid any further damage. The submarine seemed to let them go, for they didn't initiate a chase on the freighter then December 20th, 1941, a Japanese submarine attacked SS Emilio, a civilian oil tanker that was not part of any military operation. The ship's captain believed that the attack was a misunderstanding and in response waved a white flag to gesture surrender.
2: Do try like fuck you know, I'm not part of this.
1: They also <laughs> headed for shore, but not before sustaining another torpedo hit. Once their course was changed, the submarine, like the one before, did not give chase. The captain sent out an SOS, and the U.S. Air Force assembled a squadron to go and check out the situation, but they found no submarine. It had disappeared beneath the waters. Like a submarine (laughs) does. Yeah! In the following weeks, more attacks on ships in the Pacific continued. So, due to the attack on Pearl Harbor, many people also volunteered for civil service positions. Private citizens signed up for Civil Defense Corps, a civilian equivalent to the military. And on May 20th, 1941, more than six months prior to getting involved with the World War II, or with World War II, President Franklin Roosevelt set up the Office of Civilian Defense, or OCD, to coordinate state and federal measures to protect civilians in a war-related emergency like blackouts and special fire protection. And then the OCD organized the Civil Defense Corps to recruit and train volunteers to perform essential tasks, like firefighting, chemical attacks and uh, even air raid preparedness. Out of everyone that was affected by the war, either directly or indirectly, Japanese Americans had it the worst. They had lived in the US for years and had proven themselves for this country. Suspicions arose amongst the friends and neighbors of many Japanese Americans, which in turn scrutinized their every move. Due to racial prejudice, the area, excuse me, the idea of distrust had infiltrated the minds of many non-Japanese American citizens, although no evidence was ever brought forward of domestic terrorism or anything alike. They were shunned, and some Japanese-American-run businesses were attacked by mobs, as many considered them enemies of the country. One of the uh, many black eyes
2: of America. Yeah. It it was, it you know, looking it, looking back, it's just, it's so bad. I mean. Now it's a bruise. It's just there. Oh, yeah. I mean. A oh, scar. It's, it's something that uh, they try to make us forget, but it will never be forgotten.
1: Yeah, because if you're on a fucking podcast about the paranormal, you're gonna find out. Yep. Easel Meanwhile, government officials erected internment camps, and for months after the attack on Pearl Harbor, Navy officers would pull Japanese Americans from their homes and businesses and take them away to these camps. Detainees couldn't leave on their own, but they weren't able to plead their case, as officials would say that they weren't charged with any crime and were simply imprisoned for their own safety. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Safety. Yeah, we're going to just put you in, you know... a. Fucking hundred of you in this little tiny-ass room with no running water, and you can just shit in each other's hands. But you're safe. Yeah. Right? It's like Dr. Manhattan. That, safe now. That, that's the exactly robot why
2: they would shoot people that tried to escape. Exactly. Yeah, because they're safe. It's fucking yeah.
1: ridiculous. In January 1942, the Roberts Commission report, an inquiry into the attack on Pearl Harbor, was released by President Franklin D. Roosevelt and government officials, and it detailed why and how the U.S. was not prepared. Amongst the blame, no Japanese-Americans were referenced. However, many American citizens used this to their advantage against their so-called enemies from within. The Roosevelt administration gave into the pressure of the public and signed into effect Executive Order 9066. The order authorized the Secretary of War, which is much cooler than the Secretary of, what is it now, the Army or Secretary of Defense? It's changed now since Secretary of War. Secretary of War is fucking badass sounding. Sounds terrifying. It does. The order authorized the Secretary of War to prescribe certain areas as military zones, clearing the way for the incarceration of Japanese-Americans. It does not explicitly state solely Japanese-Americans, but no, we're not dumb. We know that's exactly why they did it. That is basically who this was made for. 117,000 people, Japanese-Americans, were taken away, and 17,000 of them were children. And And the life in the camps was absolutely brutal. During this time, officials at Fort MacArthur seemed to turn their attention towards a more pressing matter. They realized that Los Angeles would be a prime target for the Japanese. L.A. was built atop oil fields, and its port was one of the largest and is still the busiest ports in all of the United States. To protect the city, officials ordered the ant- or that anti-aircraft guns to be manned day and night. And then a color-coded system was in place that told citizens when to take cover, an alert system. And it goes with yellow first as unidentified aircraft approaching the coast. Then it turns to blue. Enemy aircraft were approaching. So you now know that it was enemy aircraft. It has been identified. Then it turns to red that an attack was imminent and citizens had to back or black out uh, their homes and maintain any and all radio silence. And then last but not least, it would go to green, which just meant open fire. So on February 23, 1942, Roosevelt gave one of his fireside chats where he encouraged people to stay strong and to not lose hope. During this speech, at 7.15 p.m., the Elwood oil field received its first wave of bombs from an attacking Japanese submarine. If successfully attacked, the American supply line could be severely crippled. 20 minutes after the initial attack, Navy jets flew over the bay, dropping depth charges, but were unsuccessful in destroying the sub. The submarine then disappeared. Luckily, the oil field was barely scratched. But this was the first attack on the continental United States since World War One.
2: And if I'm not mistaken, I think that oil field, it's like five miles long, too. Like, if they would have had a direct hit, similar to how the Arizona, they hit, like, one of the Ford magazines, and that's what, like, they had all the ammunition
1: stuff that exactly. it, we would have been fucked. Yeah, good, good lord, who knows the amount of destruction that would have happened with five miles of Five meals. Uh, Well, you know, that sounds pretty good. Five (laughs) miles (laughs) of oil-ridden field, basically. So the day after the attack, February 24th, naval intelligence received an alert saying that the Japanese would attack yet again within the next 10 hours. The entire West Coast was on high alert. Around 7.20 p.m. on February 24th, 1942, air raid sirens sounded in Los Angeles. Coast Guard radar caught a blip of something and someone spotted flashing lights near the factories that manufactured war materials. The sirens quit just three hours later as nothing else was reported. It seemed to have been a false alarm. Then around 11 p.m., radar caught another blip from something, but the Coast Guard was hesitant to send out an alert due to the false alarm just hours before. The Coast Guard contacted air traffic control, which assured them that there were no scheduled flights at that time or that area. Whatever the radar had caught was not supposed to be there. But just as quickly as the objects appeared, they also disappeared. Then it's like it
2: has a cloaking device. Oh
1: shit. Then just before Harry Potter's on board with the Invisibility Cloak. <laughs> then just before two AM on February twenty fifth, nineteen forty two, the Coast Guard picked up yet another blip on radar, something out over the Pacific Ocean. Something that seemed to be heading straight for Los Angeles. Fifteen minutes later, two other locations reported unidentified radar readings. This was to confirm that there was, in fact, unidentified aircraft approaching the coast. So the alert system went yellow. At two hundred twenty three AM, the Coast Guard believed the unidentified aircraft to be Japanese. So the alert system went to blue. Then three minutes later at two hundred twenty six AM, the Coast Guard were still unable to identify the aircraft that were heading inland to hopefully avoid another surprise attack. Just like Pearl Harbor or the Elwood oil field, the alert system went to red. Lights from Los Angeles and all the way south to the Mexican border were shut off. Radio silence stretched across the land, and the air raid sirens began to sound. Some people would hide in their homes, occasionally peeking through the curtains in hopes of catching a glimpse of what was occurring outside. Others would stand out on the back of their porch. To, and witness what the cause of the alarm would be, just like a Midwest dad during a tornado. I, I'm, I am <laughs> totally imagine someone in just like a fucking robe and like socks, just bare ass nude, just sitting on the back porch, like a beer in their hand, like a middle of the light life. Fuck yeah, man, this is gonna be a kill.
2: <laughs> just yeah, you know, Americans never change. <laughs>
1: <laughs> People would keep their eyes on the skies for enemy aircraft and the shorelines for enemy troops. Calls started to come in from local citizens saying that they spotted enemy planes flying overhead, but they were not attacking. Police officers and members of the Civil Defense Corps patrolled the streets, making sure people were abiding by the defense system orders.
2: Well, like that, that was the crazy thing, too, is like eyewitnesses say that they saw like I, there was one report from like a police officer who said he saw like 150 to 200 planes. Some people say they saw like no more than like 15 Others say that, you know, they saw like seven flying in a V formation. Some say none. Yeah. It, it, it's insane. Like something, something had to be in the sky. Like they had to have at least
1: seen something. I, when we get into our conclusions here in our discussion, I sort of believe that something might have been, but um, I go a whole other route yeah. and I think you are going to go. So by 2.30 a.m., searchlights and the anti-aircraft guns were manned and ready for whatever was to come. Civilians and military personnel alike stared up into the sea of stars and searched for an aircraft, but saw nothing, although radar was still picking up the mysterious blips. The searchlights stabbed the night sky, waiting for something to come into view. Then around 30 minutes later, just barely after 3 a.m., An anti-aircraft station in Santa Monica, about 15 miles from Los Angeles, reported that they saw enemy aircraft. So the alert system went green. The firing began. Civilians started shooting blindly into the night. People cowered in their homes. Men, women, children, and pets were overcome with anxiety and fear. Then sometime after 3 a.m., all searchlights in Los Angeles converged and focused on one spot. The lights would scare away the dark and reveal an object or what many believe was an object. The reports of my witnesses range from uh, with the appearance of the object from a plane or a zeppelin to a ship that was either disc or triangular in shape.
2: And now, you know, it's it's important to note, too, the amount of gunfire that was going off. Artillery rounds, you know, military members just firing aimlessly. They essentially went full on uh, predator mode, like the scene where they had no idea what the fuck they were shooting at. Like there was a, but uh, there was one guy who was manning an uh, um, anti-air, anti-aircraft like machine gun, and he was pretty much like, "What am I supposed to shoot at?" And his commanding officer was just like, "You have to fire." So a lot of these people were just firing because
1: they didn't want to be reprimanded. Ex- exactly. Because, um, you know, if you were to freeze an action, some yep. of the other, like in Pearl Harbor and, um, um, oh, there was some other incident, but I mean, you could, yeah, you could ex- be, you know, let go from the military yep. to the service. You know, your life could fall apart if yeah. you weren't, you know, serving the military,
2: serving your country to do your duty. And you had like the uh, oh, I forget what they called them, but like the civilian, uh, like, Soldiers themselves that were pretty much just firing aimlessly to like the Civilian Defense Corps, yeah, yeah, like it was fucking
1: chaos. Oh, it was like, oh god, I, it was. I think it was like 1400 rounds f- fired. Um, yeah, over 1400 rounds of anti aircraft ammunition and thousands upon thousands of 50 caliber bullets were used, but none of it seemed to phase the object. And that was just whatever this incident was. Anywhere else you near know, like Santa Monica, if they were firing, which I, I believe they were, I mean, that wasn't accounted for. In, in this battle. I think the exact number is either 1440 or 1430, the amount of amuni- uh, anti-aircraft ammunition. So cars and buildings were damaged. Some businesses have been hit with bombs and shrapnel rained down upon the city, but none of that was from the aircraft. The unidentified flying object did not attack Los Angeles whatsoever. The destruction was friendly fire, the consequence of shooting up into the sky. It was reported that three people had died due to car wrecks just minutes after the blackout, and two people later died due to heart attacks from the air raid. So the death toll in total was five just innocent people. Yep. Then at 4.14 a.m., the order was sent out to cease fire, But for hours afterwards, military personnel and civilians would keep an eye out in case the situation was to happen again. Then at 7.21 a.m., authorities gave the all clear and began assessing the damage. There were reports that a plane went down in the middle of Hollywood, but no one was ever able to find any remains of the craft. Nothing was ever found in the city, the hills, the beach, the ocean, anywhere. Reporters chased leads across town trying to separate fact from fiction, and newspapers would go on to be sold out that day and the following. People wanted answers but could not find them. Rumors grew and stories were muddled. Citizens would share their accounts of what happened that night with one another. Yeah, like
2: people were like celebrating like it was like they actually won something, which mm-hmm. is ridiculous. <laughs> like there's no other way to say it. It just you guys didn't accomplish anything. Like I know you felt like you
1: did, but I just, bet just... I bet in the moment I'd almost be the same. Uh, Even yeah, if I, I didn't see something, I mean, all it takes is probably two or three other random people in the streets to celebrate that, you know, we defended off whatever it was, I'd be yeah, like this is true. Well, cool. You know, go USA then. Yeah,
2: our city's not on fire. So hey, look at that. Exactly. Well, parts of it were on fire, but
1: Because of your own Browns, but hey. (laughs) (laughs) Many people claimed to have seen one aircraft. Many people claimed to have seen hundreds. Some claimed that there was no aircraft. As you can see, eyewitness accounts were very conflicting. Citizens said that the aircraft retaliated. Others claimed the exact opposite. One gentleman said an aircraft was shot down. A few others said that there was 25 aircraft in a V formation. Fun fact, some describe the craft as looking like the head of a shovel. And what's cool about this is that the art director for the original War of the Worlds was a child when this event happened uh, and used this description for the alien ships in War of the Worlds. Now, in theory, the military should have come forward with the events that unfolded in the early hours of February 25th, but all they had to say for certain were that the blips were caught on radar. They're just not sure how many there were. Then on the morning of February 26, 1942, the L.A. Times hit the shelves with a front page that read searchlights and anti-aircraft guns Comb sky during alarm. But what was even more intriguing than the headline was the photograph. The black and white photograph, which I'm sure many, many people out there have seen. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're like, I'm not too sure what the Battle of L.A. is, if you type it into your computer, you're immediately going to see the image and probably be like, oh, yeah, Yeah, I've seen that before. It's such an iconic photo. If you have any interest in UFOs, I guarantee you've seen this picture. So the black and white photograph depicts eight cones of illumination, searchlights. And they're all pointing to one object into the sky, like some, almost looks like some celestial like arachnid. It's got like eight legs and it's just, I don't know, it's weird. It's godly almost. The object in question looks to be shaped kind of like a blimp or perhaps a big flying saucer, like a big bean almost, like a lozenge, I think one person describes it as, with five little orbs of light on top of it. I think if you look at the negative of the photo, you can technically see maybe seven or eight little tiny orbs of light. Yeah, I believe those are all just the... The uh, artillery fire. That's what I believe it is, too. It's just traces of the artillery yep. fire. It showed the exact moment when all searchlights converged onto the alleged unidentified flying object. And what's interesting about this is Kenneth Arnold, the, the man who reported seeing UFOs, or as he described them, flying saucers, in early 1947 before Roswell hit, that was basically when it was brought, you know, by... into pop culture was the term flying saucers at this time flying saucers really wasn't a term like it was used for sure but it wasn't heavily used like ever since the events or the event of July 4th 1947 so the photographer admitted to modifying the photo the photo was edited where the spotlights were widened and brightened so the image would stand out on a black background but that was custom at the time that was common practice yeah All photos went through this when published in the newspaper because the printing process at the time was nowhere as good as it is today. See, the negative was underexposed, which was typical of photos that were taken at night. The print from the original negative was published in the newspaper, uh, the newspaper's first edition, but subsequent writings used the enhanced photo with improved contrast. With all that said, though, the photographer stated that the object caught in the lights and the little orbs of light around the craft had not been altered in any way. A witness stated that they watched the entire event unfold. A large aircraft silently flew through the sky and hovered. Military personnel and civilians fired at it, but none of the artillery brought the aircraft down or even damaged it. It seemed impenetrable. It was pale orange in color and a beautiful sight. The object eventually soared away from the searchlights and disappeared into the vast of night. There was absolutely no way a normal aircraft could survive the onslaught of ammunition that was being fired at it. So at the end of World War II, the Japanese Imperial Navy confirmed that no Japanese plane had flown over Los Angeles on February 25th, 1942. Now, they do say plane. They don't say it wasn't something else of theirs, but it goes on without saying for the majority of the story to just believe that the Japanese were not involved in it. That's what most people try to confer from that. Yeah, they can say they weren't. Exactly. Exactly. In 1984, Jamie Chanderay, a UFO researcher, claimed to have received documents about a top-secret government group called Majestic 12, and how they were originally created in 1947 due to the Roswell crash, but later expanded their investigations into all known UFO incidents. Then, author and researcher Timothy Good gathered all his findings on Char- uh, Chanderay's research and published a book, Above Top Secret, and his book featured a letter called the Marshall Roosevelt Memo. In actuality, there were a few memos between Marshall and Roosevelt, and I'll I'll read a, a few of them now. First memo here is on February 27th, 1942, so just a few days afterwards, and it says, Memorandum for Chief of Staff of the Army. I have considered the disposition of the material and possession of the army that may be of great significance toward the development of a super weapon of war. I disagree with the argument that such information should be shared with our ally, the Soviet Union. Consultation with Dr. Bush and other scientists on the issue of finding practical uses for the atomic secrets learned from study of celestial devices precludes any further discussion, and I therefore authorize Dr. Bush to proceed with the project without further delay. This information is vital to the nation's superiority and must remain within the confines of state secrets. Any further discussion on the matter will be restricted to General Donovan, Dr. Bush, the Secretary of War, and yourself. The challenge our nation faces is daunting and perilous in this undertaking, and I have committed the resources of the government towards that end. you have any assurance that when circumstances are favorable and we are victorious, the Army will have the fruits of research in exploring further applications of this new wonder? You may speak to me about this if the above is not wholly clear. It says FDR. Now, the next piece I got here, it's kind of hard to read, but it says, I'm going to read bits and pieces because for whatever reason, there's this gigantic fucking black smudge on it. But it says, as indicated in the February 26th memorandum uh, to you regarding the air raid over Los Angeles, uh, he had learned that the Army G2, the rear Admiral Anderson um, came across some intelligence that informed the War Department of a naval uh, research, a naval retrieval of an unidentified airplane off the coast of California. Uh, and it was bearing an unconventional explanation, almost as if it was interplanetary. Further, the Army Air Corps also recovered a ship in the same Berna, uh, Bernardino Mountains east of Los Angeles, which is also unconventional aircraft. The headquarters uh, came in, says the headquarters has come in to Something determination, I believe that the mystery airplanes are in fact not earthly, and uh, according to secret intelligence sources, they are in all probability of interplanetary origin. As a consequence, I've issued orders to Army G2, uh, something, something about intelligence Unit to be created to further investigate the phenomena and report any significant connection between recent activities and those collected by the director of the Office of coordinate, Coordinator. Yeah, it's kind of hard to read, and I know it's kind of butchered, but those are some of the Majestic 12 documents, supposedly, that talk about this, um, this event. But before I go any farther, the one true memo that I can say does exist is from Marshall to Roosevelt, February 26, 1942, and it says, Memorandum for the President. The following is the information we have from GHQ at this moment regarding the air alarm over Los Angeles of yesterday morning from details available at this hour. Unidentified airplanes other than American Army or Navy planes were probably over Los Angeles and were fired on by elements of the 37th California Brigade between 312 and 415 AM. These units expended 1,430 rounds of ammunition. As many as 15 airplanes may have been involved, flying at various speeds from what is officially reported as being very slow. To as much as two hundred miles per hour and at elevations from nine thousand to eighteen thousand feet. No bombs were dropped, no casualties amongst our troops, no planes were shot down, no American Army or Navy planes were aware or were in it. Investigation continuing. It seems reasonable to conclude that if unidentified airplanes were involved, they may have been from commercial sources, operated by enemy agents for purposes of spreading alarm, disclosing location of anti-aircraft positions, and slowing production through blackout. Such conclusion is supported by varying speed of operation and the fact that no bombs were dropped. It says, GC or C. or so, Marshal Chief of Staff. But that's the one true memo that we can say was sent to the president and, you know, converse back and forth. Going back to those Majestic 12 documents, later, the FBI released a statement saying that the Majestic 12 documents are a complete hoax. But why can I not trust the FBI?
2: I do know, like, one of the evidence that they brought forward about that was the fact that, like, the typewriter that was used... He beat me to it, you beat me to the punch. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, like I said, I know a lot about this case. But yeah, the typewriters, because little known fact that a lot of people probably don't know. Are they, I had
1: no idea until I researched yep, this.
2: Typewriters, they're a lot of times they're described similar to snowflakes, where they're all different by just a little bit.
1: And, oh yeah, the spacing between the letters, yep. the the punctuations uh, the punctuation the kind of like if it's a straight line or if it's ever so skewed a little bit when you're typing. oh yeah, yep, you're exactly correct, and it's that's just how like like, a I
2: mean that's how so many like letters like all throughout history have been proven to come from like the same typewriter or different typewriters, especially when it comes to like serial killer cases and stuff mm. like that, okay, but that's how they were able to distinguish with this one that the two letters came from the same
1: typewriter, yep, you're exactly correct, um. So in 1999, Timothy Good came out and confessed that the documents were faked, not by his hand though, but whoever created the memos. Another author, Timothy Cooper, had come out saying that he uncovered more documents in which Good knew was false, and therefore therefore told the truth that was withheld. Now makes me believe that Timothy Good knew these were fake before he published his book above top secret. So, that's a little dickish move. He, he needed some fluff in his book. Yeah, yeah. And then just like Josh subscribed, or subscribed, can you subscribe to the podcast, please? I believe I already am. As he described, good notice that the typeface on the letters were all the same, and typewriters, much like snowflakes, are all different. The Marshall Roosevelt memo, or memos, are, are the only pieces of evidence in this story that really suggest that a UFO was involved in the Battle of Los Angeles. Wow, where'd you come from? So now, if the cause of the Great Air Raid wasn't from aliens or people from the outside, perhaps it came from someone on the inside. And one man's extreme paranoia will be thoroughly looked at. Oh, this dickhead. With no real evidence pointing toward a possible extraterrestrial craft or Japanese planes and the false alarms that occurred right before the Battle of L.A., we now turn to Lieutenant General John L. DeWitt. More like Dimwit. Yeah, good job, buddy. Give me a high five for that. That was great. Please, please, no. dear God, give me a fucking high <laughs> five. <God, Josh. laughs> so he oversaw the Western Defense Command a division of the army that protected the West Coast, the entire West Coast, more than 13,000 miles of coastland from Washington all the way to the Mexico border. My God, one guy in charge of that? DeWitt and General Walter Short, who was in charge of military operations during Pearl Harbor, were good friends, good colleagues. After witnessing the attack on Pearl Harbor the day after, DeWitt called for a blackout in San Francisco, afraid that another attack was imminent. And this did not go according to plan. no. Early December 9th, 1941, air raid sirens began to alarm, but San Francisco didn't go dark. According to U.S. General William Ryan, the blackout almost ended in disaster. He stated that Japanese planes flew by the Golden Gate Bridge for reconnaissance, but for unknown reasons turned around. There was no support for this claim at all. DeWitt was pissed that his orders weren't completely followed and went before the city council stating, You people don't seem to realize that we are in war. So get this. Last night, there were plans over this community. They were enemy plans. I mean, <laughs> Japanese plans.
2: Yeah, I, I remember Dick. I was listening to a uh, podcast and they described it as, like, they described the internet where, like, there were lights on, like, one of the piers that wouldn't go out, and, and an officer fucking shot him out. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Hey, you know, take it seriously. <sighs> I
1: guess, but for the right reasons, please. Hey, they didn't know. So... DeWitt, or Dimwitt, or Dickwit, or whatever you want to call him, believed there were spies everywhere, saboteurs that lurked in the shadows.
2: Saboteur!
1: DeWitt hated, and I mean hated, Japanese Americans. He pushed Roosevelt to really crack down on Japanese civilians in the United States. Some people believe that DeWitt exaggerated his claims to get the internment camps built for use. On February 14, 1942, DeWitt sent a letter to Roosevelt that basically said there were over 100,000 Japanese-American enemies at large along the West Coast today. And it's remarkable that an attack hasn't happened from the inside yet, but indicating that such action will be taken. This logic would be what convinced Roosevelt to put into effect Executive Order 9066. After it seemed that DeWitt got what he wanted, he was not done enforcing his rule. He issued several other blackouts and forced many businesses, like the Rose Bowl, for instance, uh, to shut down because they were too big of a target. DeWitt called for many yellow alerts in the early months of 1942, but no planes were ever seen under these alerts. After the Elwood oil bombing, Dimwit was on high alert, so to speak. A day later, on February 25th, he heard that the Coast Guard caught radar blips. DeWitt would sound the air raid alarms. He called for military personnel and civilians to shoot blindly into the sky. They did not want to be disciplined for freezing in action and end up with the same fate as others in the past few months. One gentleman, like Josh talked about earlier, manning an anti-aircraft gun at Fort MacArthur in Los Angeles, refused to shoot. His commanding officer ordered him to fire, which he then stated, at what? What for? And his CO said it did not matter. Just shoot. Hours after the initial air raid sirens went off, they stopped. The great air raid of Los Angeles was over, and yet the only people that were frightened were dead, and equipment and surroundings that were damaged were that of Americans. But despite the lack of controlled emotions, DeWitt issued a statement honoring his fellow servicemen and their duty to defend this country against the attack. Henry Stimson, the secretary for the Army, tried to defend the military's actions. He said there might have been enemy aircraft, the Japanese could have sent troops to locate our anti-aircraft in- installations. He raised the possibilities that the raid might have happened, but never explicitly stated that it is truthfully, truthfully what had happened the way the military is describing, describing or trying to describe that it did. Big if true. Oh, God, yeah. DeWitt refused to admit his mistake. He doubled down on himself, saying that what he had conducted was the utmost priority and necessity. The relocation of Japanese-Americans is vital for the West Coast. It is too vulnerable and important to take any chances and let it fall into the hands of chaos. DeWitt explained, quote, unquote, I don't want any of them. As the war continued, DeWitt issued more alerts and blackouts. All of them were false alarms. This man's anxiety seemed to be infectious. So now let's take a second and look at another angle. On the night of the attack... The 203rd Coast Guard Artillery Regiment used weather balloons to test the wind conditions. Anti-aircraft guns had a huge range, about 25,000 feet, so they could be heavily altered due to high winds. So to test wind conditions was highly important. Two large silver weather balloons were released near Santa Monica. Each carried a lit candle, which might I add, the gentleman that said that whatever aircraft was in the air had a nice bright orange light to it, could have very well have been the light from a candle. Obviously, it's hard to imagine a weather balloon surviving thousands and thousands and thousands of rounds of you know, ammunition and such. But let's just say, for the fact, for the sake of the fact that it did, this light could possibly uh, lend credence to this man's witness. Or excuse me, I don't account. buy it
2: because I'm tired of the goddamn government saying it's always fucking weather balloons. Yeah, not to mention it's like you said, you know. There is no fucking way.
1: Not one of those rounds hit. It's a fucking balloon. Now, I I hear people say, you know, it is tough to take down a weather balloon like that, but it's not impossible. These artillery
2: rounds are made to take down fucking airplanes. (laughs) <laughs> Dude, I don't know what, I don't
1: know what to, what to tell you.
2: Are you telling me that they're making weather balloons tougher than goddamn airplanes cuz fuck. They probably should have done that to the oh god what's the famous blimp that fucking Hindenburg. Yeah, Hindenburg. Probably should have made in Hindenburg out of fucking weather balloon material. I don't fucking know. It would also exp- Maybe they should have made the fucking Titanic out of a goddamn weather balloon.
3: <laughs>
1: Make the iceberg sink. <laughs> so, I uh, this balloon would also lend credence to why some people said it looked like the aircraft was hovering why it covered like 20 miles in like 30 minutes or an hour which is unbelievably slow for an aircraft also if you look up pictures of a weather balloon they look like a balloon they do they do but perhaps the light reflecting off of everything maybe made it hard to see i don't buy it i know that's the one that i'm like
2: no it wasn't a fucking weather balloon i mean you know Oh, we'll get into the discussions. I'd have my, what I think it was. Of but. course, if
1: it was the weather balloon, maybe that is what crashed. Maybe they covered it up because like, wow, if people knew we just shot at our own equipment and just lost We're millions and millions of, of dollars and all our ammunition that we spent is very expensive, especially oh, and during five the war people are dead. and five people dead, if they know it was all our fault, that's going to be bad. I believe it. I, I, I can believe it. So yeah, each carried a lit candle inside to help personnel track the balloon. Shortly after they sent up the balloons, they notified command, but before they received the response, gunfire took place. It seemed that some military personnel were not notified of the balloon test. Once the gunmen noticed the balloons, they opened fire. But amidst all of the confusion, it wasn't known if the gunfire was towards the balloons or perhaps an actual enemy aircraft. So they lost control of the balloons and they actually traveled inland towards Los Angeles. Because, I mean... Perhaps you see the, or perhaps you set the balloon off, and you send, hey, just so you know, we're going to test this real quick, but no one gets back to you, and someone miles away goes, what the fuck is that? Because they don't receive the call, they start shooting at it, and you have someone else miles away hears the gunfire and is like, what the fuck are they doing? And then they just start shooting. Just a chain reaction. A gentleman named Lieutenant Tim came forward the next day and had a talk with his COs. He recounted his experience later and said that he was told to keep his mouth shut and that there had been seven Japanese planes in the sky. He said, if I had said that we shot at balloons and not enemy aircraft, then I would have been put behind bars. But obviously, this doesn't seem to add up with other eyewitness reports. So now, let us take a look at mass hysteria, for example. Like the dancing plague of 1518. And if no one knows the hell that is, check it out. Because it's just a bunch of fucking people that danced, and a lot of them danced to their death. No one knows why. They just fucking danced to their death. You can look at the Salem Witch Trials, where people are like, "Man, I bet that I bet that guy was casting a spell on me earlier," and all of a sudden, yeah, people were just being killed. The Salem Witch Trials is just the perfect example. of Don't
2: have children. Mm,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Orson Welles' "Rule of the Worlds," uh, "War of the Worlds" broadcast example of mass hysteria. According to Professor Simon Wesley, an account of mass hysteria must meet five criteria. First, people all share unusual behaviors that cannot be explained by their physical condition. You know, if you had the dancing plague of 1518, if we knew that, say, all those individual individuals had like Parkinson's, for example, then we might know why they were making erratic movements. I'm not saying it's funny to think that they're dancing or anything like that, um, but again, ex- explanation for the erratic movements, but they're not. Well, in this case, they're not. You can't explain anything with their physical condition by noticing a UFO up in the sky. Second, the hysteria affects people who would not normally behave in this fashion. You have people that jump up and dance around in churches and plays and whatnot that do. Exactly. They don't, it doesn't normally affect people like that. So your kind of average Joe that does believe they witness a said UFO could fall in line to an apart uh, mass hysteria case. Third, the hysteria begins spontaneously. If I say to someone, oh, look at that UFO up there, and then all these people start believing it, that is not mass hysteria. It happens just out of nowhere. Fourth, mass hysteria does not apply to fads or trends. You can't say everyone's got mass hysteria because they want to go and, um, I don't know, buy the, the new Tesla model that came out or they want to buy a brand new phone that's hitting shelves and everyone's going ape shit for. That's not mass hysteria. Black Friday. Black Friday. And then fifth, last but not least, mass hysteria occurs within groups of close people. If someone in California witnessed something that someone in Egypt witnessed, that doesn't matter. It has to be close groups. So perhaps the alert system air raid sirens and bombing of the Elwood oil field set people on even higher alert. And when the great air raid of Los Angeles started to happen, people saw planes because they believed they were going to see planes. These episodes of mass hysteria are usually brought up due to times of intense stress, anxiety, and hardship. And what is more intense than war, shall I
2: ask? Oh, yeah, after, you know, Pearl Harbor got attacked and you have... Japanese submarines that are just keep popping up like goddamn fucking oh god, what's that arcade game? Uh, battleship? No, um, <laughs> I don't know. Whack a mole, just when they're popping up out of the oh, water, okay, okay. I don't know
1: why I couldn't think of whack a mole for a second. Wasn't there reports or or that we knew of like Japanese submarines were able to have aircraft on them and can launch them from the water? I think it was reported. I, I think, yeah, I think that was something. A 1983 Office of Air Force History report concluded that the combination of the weather balloon and mass hysteria is what occurred in the early morning of February 25th, 1942. Today, the Fort MacArthur Museum hosts an annual reenactment of the Battle of Los Angeles. People can listen to live bands and enjoy local food until officials under civilians, or excuse me, until officials order civilians to take cover and reenactors then fire blanks into the sky until they give the all clear. And man, I just want to say that could be kind of fun to be a part of, I would say, I mean, something good time. So that's basically it. That's basically the story and the events that led afterwards with these memorandums and, uh, the Navy coming out saying, Oh yeah, well we didn't, we didn't see anything that we shot out, shot at. And then later it's like, Oh yeah, we thought it was a weather balloon and all these, um, uh, Majestic 12 related documents, and then in the late 80s, people coming forward with mass hysteria cases and all that. That's all that all falls in line with the whole case. But for the majority, that is the case. There's not too much to look into, or at least that we can look into now, since it's been what 80 years, 80 or so years. Yeah, yeah, almost. Um, but obviously, there are a lot more questions and answers, just like everything else that follows this kind of these kind of topics. Um I've heard supposedly that the Army released a contradictory statement to the Navy when the Navy said, you know, we weren't shooting at at anything, it was just the jitters, and then the Army would say that it was one of our weather balloons, and then I have some people reporting that there there is a case where the Navy, who said it was nothing, launched an investigation into the matter, and they went out into the ocean, and they commenced to dive, and there were possibly multiple dive spots to try and find evidence of this thing, because... When it disappeared, it disappeared over the Pacific Ocean. It seemed to go back out towards sea very slowly, and disappear. So then the Navy sent some vessels out there, like find out what the hell that was. Um, but I don't have any of that in reports. I don't. It's just hearsay, basically. Yeah, I do find it pretty hard to not be able to identify what is in the sky. I really do, especially with hundreds and hundreds and. Thousands and thousands of people that were probably out doing this. I mean, it's a blackout. You have no light pollution. It's literally just completely dark except the, what, 12 searchlights in the entire area? Yeah. I mean, obviously, I've never been put into that situation, but I find it so difficult to imagine them not able to tell what was in the sky.
2: Yeah, like somebody had to have gotten a clear, like, look at it and would have been able to come forward unless they were
1: silenced. Yeah, and and the radio broadcast that I played in the very beginning of this episode is the only thing I can find where anyone talks about the Navy sending out aircraft when this happened. Yeah, because I mean, I've
2: never heard many
1: other reports talking about but that at all. isn't
2: that weird, though?
1: Isn't it weird that— something's in the sky and everyone's shooting from the ground but you hear no one say we're going to send our own aircraft after it honestly
2: at that point when you're firing when you have that many especially civilians firing i don't know if you're going to want to send your own aircrafts up because well that might be true all it's going to take is one jittery fucker behind an a gun you yeah. just to be like oh fuck planes and up look at that yeah fucking well, friendly
1: fire that could very well be the case i mean if i saw jets or I should say, if I saw something in the sky, you know, I think I'd see the lights of jets. You know, you'd think you'd hear yeah. something. People said they didn't hear anything, which really puts it up in the air for me if it was an actual aircraft or not. And that's why, oh, god damn, I kind of want to lean towards the theory of the weather balloon or at least a combination of it because, goddamn, I don't know. It's hard for me to imagine an aircraft being there.
2: Yeah, I, I don't subscribe to the weather balloon. I don't. Necessarily think it was UFO either. I have no idea what it was. I mean, who's to say it wasn't a, uh, God, why can why is my brain just fucking, you're having trouble speaking? I'm having trouble thinking. But like, who's to say it wasn't something that was like a uh, craft that one of the enemy, like, I, cause I mean, we know the fucking German military was working on all kinds of fucking weird shit. Yeah. Who's to say they didn't team up with Japan and have, some kind of, like, test vehicle that was maybe unmanned. Yeah, I mean, that very well could have been. They could have sent that. Who the fuck knows? I just, I don't know. The weather balloon for me, just, I don't subscribe to it because there's no way somebody would have fucking hit it. No, I mean. Especially, uh... I mean, in the picture itself, you have artillery shells above it. You can fucking sneeze next to a balloon and they fucking pop. <laughs> Weather well, balloons aren't made, especially back in the day. I mean, now they're made of stronger material, but back in the day, they weren't made. Well, I mean, super... Mylar
1: was more.
2: Yeah, but goddamn, like artillery shell is gonna penetrate the fuck out of that thing. Uh,
1: I, and that's the thing: the thousands and thousands of am- of ammunition, the, the rounds, the how expensive that was. I. I really do, I do believe that they had to have been shooting at something or they at least thought something was there. They had a reason to shoot. Oh yeah, I mean, especially
2: in that picture where all the lights are contained
1: to one thing, like they saw something. Well, it's funny you bring that up because the last little piece here I have my outline and um, I won't end the episode with it because I got more to talk about, but I watched UFOs declassified i believe was the show and they of course covered the battle of los angeles well the picture that's printed on the la times that we that we all know and love of the of the battle of los angeles the archivists of the la times collection at ucla had access to over 4 million negatives i mean which is obviously the the opposite of what you normally see of a photograph what cannot be altered if you look at the negative of an image that is what was captured on that image. But this guy had access to everything that the, the LA Times had. His name is Simon Elliott, and in box 3178 of the LA Times collection, the negative for the Battle of LA is held there. And the negative is very unexposed, like I talked about, which explains why the retouching that was done. Now, in the negative, it's very hard to tell if there was an actual object at the convergence points. If you look the negative, there really doesn't seem to be an object there. Um, but some signs point to there possibly being an object that was spotted. The most interesting part about the negative is the notch codes. So each... The fuck you call me? <laughs> so the notch code in these negatives in photographs are according to what camera is used. All right. And the L.A. Times reporters and the photographers and journalists and such all use the same camera. I mean, at least the one that the L.A. Times gave them. Maybe this person who took it had a different camera, but the notch code for the negative is the only one, of course, watching UFOs declassified. So take it with a grain of salt, if you will. But the archivist says that this is the only picture in the archive that has a different notch code than any of the other negatives, suggesting this was taken with a different camera, possibly by someone that was not an LA Times journalist. So where could this photograph had come from? Who actually took the original?
2: It was planted.
1: Now, using high-resolution scans, we've adjusted the brightness and contrast of the negative, and with some certainty, we we can tell that there is a higher amount of density at the convergence of the searchlights, which indicates that there might have been an object at that point, because you can see again, I think I mentioned earlier, about like light reflection and and such, it seems like it was bouncing off of something, maybe, you know, artillery shells and whatnot, maybe a big cluster of them, because I mean, how many were thrown up there? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So maybe it reflected off of a bunch of those. I'm not exactly sure. Since the size of the possible object cannot be determined, it suggests that if something to the nature of a UFO or an aerial vehicle was captured, then it was either in motion or translucent. Because it is not a fixated object like the searchlight was. It has this weird blur effect to it. Another aspect of this negative are the searchlights. Some of the beams seem to almost pass through the object. Again, if there is one, if there is an object, but this could be anywhere from the beam not entirely centered onto the object. I mean, the light could just be half on it and the other piece of your light's just passing right through or passing to the side, I should say. Um, it could be an illusion done by all the smoke from the artillery. It could be uh, camera irregularities, you know, def- uh, defects in that. So, one thing we can say about these searchlights is that the beams seem to get brighter the closer they are to the object, which again, that something was possibly there, or something at the very least was reflecting that light back. The most intriguing piece of the negative, though, is back again to the notch code. This notch code is different than the others in the LA Times archive, and it seems to look like the Kodak fine-grain positive notch code, which tells specialists, like some photographic analysts, that this negative is possibly the copy of the actual negative. If true, where could that original negative be? Was it taken by the government? I mean, what could have happened with that?
2: Who knows? That's, Maybe
1: it's where fucking JFK's brain is. Maybe. But I've, that was an insane part to me because now, obviously, with that information, you you cannot make heads or tails of this. I'm telling Probably you. Probably ever, ever now. The fucking
2: ever. The government buried somewhere has a giant-ass warehouse that looks like the fucking end of Indiana Jones, <laughs> where it's just boxes and boxes of fucking archived shit that they want to keep secret, I'm telling you it exists.
1: It's out there. What exists? What that warehouse? Yeah. Uh, totally. I, I would... You know, I, while researching this case and um, coming across when the FBI would declassify or the CIA would declassify documents and such like that, I didn't realize that Area 51... Do You know when it was declassified, basically told to the public? It was like 2013. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know it was literally eight fucking years ago that they were like, yeah, we do have a secret base out here, okay? Yeah. Of course, they didn't tell us, you know, the details of it or what was in it, but I I didn't know it was that fucking soon. I didn't know. I realized... Or I, I talked and, and listened and researched all this UFO, alien bullshit you know, years prior and had heard about Area 51 but didn't know that at that point it was actually just like rumor. It was a conspiracy until 2013. And, of course, they're like, oh, yeah, by the way. Guy, could you imagine that on TFR News hmm. if that was our detailed story? Oh, I know, right. Good Lord. Maybe we'd be famous. I don't know. But I don't know. I I can honestly see... <sighs> See the, the, the hard part is shooting down that weather balloon, but the kind of bulbous look of a weather balloon, the light candle—if that was really how they did it, which I'm, which by what I found, it is how they had it. But in, in order to track that weather balloon, they had the yellow, orangish, red lit candle, so they could track it, and it flew in towards Los Angeles. But people didn't get the message and fired it because I mean, good lord, if you sent out, you know, the message for the bike messenger to tell Pearl Harbor there was going to be attack, and that didn't get there in time. I'm sure trying to talk to you know, Central Command or whatever, trying to, hey, we, just so you know, we're seeing out a balloon. I, I can easily believe that that didn't get there in time or that didn't receive the response in a timely manner. And then people just started shooting, and then mass hysteria kicked in. I, I can honestly believe that, because I, I don't believe there was an extraterrestrial spacecraft. For the Battle of Los Angeles, yeah, I believe it was terrestrial. I believe that there was something in the sky that was seen, obviously, the radar shows the blips, so i believe I believe there was actually something there. I do find it interesting that this not in the exact same spot, but these blips over the Pacific Ocean, you know, just like the um the Navy videos that came out, and there blips over the uh, pacific ocean because if anyone listens to the story from david fravor about the uh, tic tac video he talks about when he gets back and and says oh you know we we encountered this thing and yada yada they'll tell him yeah we've actually been keeping an eye on our radar screens because these objects have been appearing and, and going for like the last two weeks multiple like 14 15 of these objects appear and then they disappear and this happens in around the same area yep Oh God, maybe that's fucking weather balloons. No. Maybe. I believe David Faber. I believe he's a good guy. But uh yeah, I mean, maybe it, you know, when they came out, the Navy came out and said it's just a case, the jitters, maybe they actually weren't far off. I, I believe yeah. that I believe they had to play a, probably a huge part in it. I
2: mean, it was definitely a stressful time, so I guarantee people just had that itchy trigger trigger finger.
1: Yeah, I, I I believe jitters was an extreme part of it. And obviously, you know, wartime tensions were insanely high. I do believe mass hysteria kicked in. But I do believe there was something there, but people just mistaken it for a... I mean, it was a UFO, but they mistaken it for an extraterrestrial craft. I really do. Um, but yeah, I i mean, that's basically the Battle of L.A. And that's, that's, my, that's the theories on it, and that's my conclusion with it. I don't think it was alien. I think there was something there, but I think people just took it way out of hand. You know, when you have general dickwit you know behind (laughs) behind the wheel of a lot of these air raid sirens that went off for no reason i mean it just frightened the fuck out of people Yep. i mean i'm not obviously going to really really correlate the two but i mean like COVID. i mean you you have people uh on on safe wavelength here so to speak you know that just uh get no high anxiety over just hearing one person talking about you know a certain thing it's just yeah, it was a really difficult time. It's, for it's definitely
2: one of those cases that will go down in history, probably as truly unexplained, no definite answer. That but, will live
1: in infamy. But I, thanks, D.
2: But yeah, who it, it It's
1: all in all, it's a fascinating case. It is because obviously there's no resolution to it, so it's just yep. kind of like, huh, what could it be? Someone needs to find me that negative. But yeah, anyway, that's the Battle of L.A. I am Matthew Plunkett, and this is Joshua Burton. Hi. Like always. And we are going to project sign off. Yes. All right. Cue the outro music. And uh, we will see you guys... Next sometime. time. We won't see you. We'll hear you. How many times am I to say that? They'll hear us. We won't hear them. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Hey, everyone. We here at The Farthest Reaches want to say thank you, because you, the listeners, make all of this possible. Please share our podcast with your friends, your family, or total strangers. You can find and connect with us on Facebook at The Farthest Reaches Podcast, Instagram at The Farthest Reaches, or Twitter at TFRPodOfficial. There we will be posting all sorts of strange stuff, and updates for upcoming episodes and whatever else we get ourselves into. If you would like to share a personal story by chance, then you can reach us at our email, podcast at gmail. We would love to hear from you, and maybe we will even tell your story to the world. In the meantime, though, explore the elusive. Seek the knowledge of the obscure, and together, we can translate this strange language of reality into something that we can understand. With that said, thanks for tuning in.